Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest podcast here at Treknababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. And we are uh, getting. Uh, we're here to review episode four of Discovery. Uh, the butcher's knife cares. No- I-, I have to look up the episode title. This is. I-, I did look this up. This is the second longest episode title in franchise history. It is two words shorter than "For the world is hollow and I have touched the sky." So, so little. Which bit- is much easier to remember, I-, I would say. Yeah. Is this a reference that I'm missing? Is this like a? P- is this a Shakespeare quote that I'm not getting? Or sounds biblical. I, I don't know. Yeah, it was just one of those like it's a. You could have called it the butcher's knife, and I probably would have been like, "Okay, I get it. There's a there's a reference in here somewhere." Like I'm not so the actual episode title here it is because we're professionals and we know what we're doing. Uh, the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry. There we go. Okay, so this is like the first real episode in a way because we've been doing three weeks worth of pilots. Um. So there, it, it's it's a transition because the show ha- is done with a lot of its world building and now it just has to to live in it. Um, overall, I liked it. Um, I, I definitely i i was think I was thinking about this. I, I've been in this perpetual state of cautious optimism mixed with fear that it's just gonna like pivot stupid at some point. Like they're gonna run out of Brian Fuller's post-it notes. And then it's because like every episode so far has had about two thirds to three quarters full of things that make me very happy as a Star Trek fan. And then about 25% of choices that make me go, what? And this is what I'm afraid will happen, that they will just run out of whatever material I believe Fuller provided. And then it will just get dumb after I've invested. Yeah, I mean, as far as my overall response uh, before we actually dive in and discuss it um i was entertained (laughs) i I don't know how much i liked it in the peculiar way that i like star trek but i was entertained i've got questions and issues all right so i made like I, i i was taking notes while watching it um, cause it's, it, I was, I was realizing this, uh, for last week's review for, uh, context is for Kings. I have about 20 years of rewatches behind just about every other piece of Star Trek. I have thoughts and thoughts about my thoughts and thoughts that I ever find through conversation with many other learned Star Trek fans. I have much less like just rumination time, um, on discovery. So I found notes helped. Um, so I, th- these are kind of chronological, and I think I'm just going to dive in. I at first that opening special effects sequence really did it for me. At first, I thought it was going to be some like take on the Badlands because it was that like two planes of miasma with like arcing electrical touching, and I kind of liked the pullback to the replicator at work. I, I thought that was like a that was that was like a fun thing that I think would have looked ridiculous with an earlier technology's attempt at rendering that, and I'm like, and I just thought it was cool. Like it, it was it was certainly cool looking. Um, Kevin, how much should I care that replicators don't haven't been yet, invented you know. yet? <laughs> Let, I mean, it's, that's that's I'm asking that as a sincere discussion question. Should but, I care? So the uh, this this brings up two things I've been thinking about all day. Um, first is something I was thinking about in continuity more generally. Star Trek has already kind of like history 
has broken Star Trek's continuity a little bit. Um, the history of Earth, as described in um, original series and Next Gen, didn't happen uh, unless um, you know politics are even more fakakta than they already are. We were not taken over by a genetically engineered uh, Sikh madman. Um, so the history that Star Trek is based on, for some of its pivotal stuff, just didn't happen. So I suppose on some level I don't mind some reorganization of the continuity for the sake of being able to tell a good story. Um, so I'm trying to... I, to say nothing of the fact, after 50 years and dozens upon dozens of writers, the internal continuity wasn't clean. You know, so like, I'm... Tr and the, the, this, this relates to the other th thought I've been thinking about all day. There was an article posted, which I have many thoughts about, but one of which was Kurtzman flatly stating that all of the apparent continuity errors will be resolved in story uh, by the end of this show. <laughs> that's a lot from a writer that, I don't entirely trust. That, that's a bold claim from someone who has not once demonstrated the ability to maintain his own internal continuity, much less, you know, 50 years of someone else's internal so continuity. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, here's, here's the thing. I have learned in many ways over the course of my life how to kind of self-soothe. It's, you know, it's like I've learned not to throw tantrums. I've learned not to sulk beyond what's necessary. I've kind of, you know, it's like, well, if this isn't where, you know, just, just how to enjoy a moment. I've worked very hard on that. So... On some level, if turning off the part of my brain, or at least giving it a secondary priority lets, uh, about fine-grained continuity lets me enjoy this show, I can, I can do that. Because on, on some level, I suppose I can console myself that a lot of the technical limitations of the TOS Enterprise were not necessarily conscious story choices. They were concessions to the very real budgeting and effects capabilities at the time. So... I, I've decided I will probably enjoy the show more if I at least let myself watch it one time through before raising those questions rather than raising them contemporaneous with my viewing. Yeah, well, so I, I hear what you're saying. And it was a question I sort of asked myself and then set aside to watch the rest of the episode. Um, to be fair to us <laughs> you know because i could imagine some people going oh who cares you stupid nerds to be fair to us they have invited yeah this yeah by setting it at this time and claiming that it is not only part of the continuity but apparently according to fucking kurtzman that it, it will somehow all fit together perfectly Right, like you, you invite it. So in this one-two punch, by placing it here and then making that claim, writing that check that I sincerely hope you're asking cash, you've invited this scrutiny. If you had said this takes place 100 years after Voyager, we would not have said boo. We would not have said, well, this feels retro. You know what? Retro comes back. Styles come back. It's fine. Yeah, um, sure. We, I would not have had a single complaint about the technological capacity of anyone here. If they'd said it, even even 20 years after Voyager, 10 whole minutes after the end of Voyager, like if the the first scene of, of Discovery could have been still Captain Janeway shaking Philippa Georgiou's hand as she takes command of the Shenzhou, and I would not have complained at all. 
you invited this scrutiny and are telling me you can fix you, 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 that. Maybe that maybe this is part of my underlying concern. Your story shouldn't depend on some hat trick. You know, it's like if you can act like, okay, so being the most charitable to the story that I can imagine, the discovery is a prototypical vessel. It is the bleeding edge of technology, not all of which works. It is it, it, it is the most advanced thing, not in wide use because the technology itself is untested. I will give you all of that. And that somehow the ship vanishes from time along with all its stuff. And for some valid in-story reason, we choose never to discuss it again. That's a lot for a story to do. It's just like, and maybe this is my residual frustration with Lost and Alias and every other primarily Abrams show, but plenty of other people do this too, heroes. Like, you've overcomplicated the story to the point that it's like, aren't you just telling me the wrong story then? Like, if this ship can't possibly impact the rest of continuity because it's so outside of it, then you're telling me like a, a, a like the one place in the universe where thermodynamics don't apply is this story. Like, it, that just, it, it's like knowing that there's some twist coming actually sets my teeth on edge. Yeah, so, I mean, I was actually, while watching this particular episode, sort of playing out scenarios in my head. It's like, okay, so we can't have Mushroom Drive because that will violate continuity, which they say this will not. So how do they get rid of it? Is it because, you know, they can't control it and they can never actually go the place they want to go? Uh, is it because animal rights activists in the future, you know, get upset about treatment of tardigrades and they just shelve it for that reason? Um, you know, like I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to get there mentally to where I can enjoy it. But they have created the hurdles that are blocking me from doing so as a Star Trek fan. Yeah, now that, that, that might not bother people who aren't invested Star Trek fans, but that, that's the world they live in, you know, and they invited it by setting it in that world. Um, you know, I'm not in the wrong here. You know, they wanted my money. I'm actually paying for it up front without having ever seen it before. They want my money and they want to trade on my fandom. And so, you know, it, like I was able to set it aside to just be like, you know what? I'll watch 45 minutes of entertainment and be entertained by it. But yeah, I've yeah got I, I just I just remain worried that whatever twist is going to. I mean, they're almost telling you up front, we're going to break our own narrative. We're going to tell you a story, and then at the end tell you it doesn't matter. Yeah, it was all a dream or something. Yeah, that's... Okay, okay moving on. <laughs> we're gonna, we'll, we will spend the 10 years until TOS on this point if we don't stop ourselves. Um, so it, you, you raised the tardigrade, and I'm going to go there, because that plot, it wasn't perfectly executed for me, but it was actually in several places an extremely Star Trek story. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. Actually, supposedly I didn't catch this when I was watching, but there was like the, the silhouette or the shadow of a Horta animal in. I did write in, my, I actually have in my notes in all caps, the word psycho uh, written in reference to Lorca's collection. That's <laughs> they're going to, mm, I'm okay. I get that Lorca's like 
I'll, I'll back up and make a broader point. I kind of like the triad they're setting up of Stamets being the like pure scientist, Lorca being the tactician, and Burnham walking the line between the two. That that obviously has some um, you know precedent in Star Trek. So I, I I can see what they're doing. I'm not sure I not sure it lands quite authentically. Like, did something happen to Lorca in the past, like, 15 minutes to make him that crazy? Or has he secretly always been this crazy? I'm, I'm curious. I, I want to see what they'll do with it to see if it makes sense without Lorca actually being a psycho. Yeah, you know, I found the way that the other characters talked about Lorca to be very strange in this episode. In the prior episode, um, Saru seemed to be very affectionate towards Lorca whereas Stamets obviously, you know, had sort of antagonism with Lorca. And so it was a more complex portrayal. And now every single character, including Saru, is like, this guy's a user and he's going to use your ass and he's he's basically nuts and, you know, don't fuck with Lorca. And I'm like, whoa, you know, it's like now suddenly everybody's like anti-Lorca, but but then they do what he says. It, it was it, it was a very strange shift and a very strange characterization, I thought. I mean, I uh, did uh, in a vacuum. I did Saru's burn was pretty sick. Like that, I, I continue to like Saru only microns less um, in ter- um, than Burnham. Like I really enjoy his characterization. Um, so yeah, the, the Tardigrade story, I thought it worked in the front half for me because she goes in and says, "We can't presume this creature is hostile. It was being threatened. It was being apparently it was apparently captive, or at least." you know, unwittingly on the ship. We shouldn't presume it's evil just because it looks different than us and, you know, that it attacked us. That's a super Star Trek point. Yeah, I like that. And uh, Burnham's visible concern at the creature's visible discomfort when being used as the centerpiece of the drive, very Star Trek. My immediate thought was uh, Ransom on the Equinox. Um I assume the creature would be physically harmed, not just made uncomfortable. And I'm curious if that's where they're going to go with it um, next week. Um, I, I like that idea because um, it's it is a very Star Trek story. Do we? It's take, got an ethical dilemma. Yeah. Do we take the shortcut for the obvious benefit? Um, so that was good. Um, I did. I did think Landry is an idiot. No, I first thought Landry is a bitch when she comes <laughs> in. My I. I my note literally was Landry's a bitch. And then I went back like 30 minutes later and added and an idiot. Yeah. Like her death. That was one of the most ignominious deaths. Serious, like Tasha Yar only by a small fraction had a more useless death. Like, <laughs> like I would be like, and the thing was, I, if the character were allowed to get some nuance over the next few episodes, I think I actually would have liked Landry a lot. Like we've had hard ass Mako types in Star Trek. It's fine. They exist in the world. They exist in our world. And um, I did find her death to be super de duper pointless and taking out an actress that I otherwise really like. She, she carried herself quite well. I just was like, Ugh. it's like, hmm. well, and they kind of didn't really do anything with it either. Like that could have set up a story where, people don't believe Burnham and, you know, they think she's being the same mutineer she was previously. And, you know, like if she says the monster was provoked, you know, 
that sets up this like tension like she's advocating for the monster and everybody else is saying no now it's killed again you know let's let's destroy this thing or whatever right and they just kind of didn't do that you know it just like that story thread just kind of stopped <laughs> it sort of felt like you know what guys we only have 15 episodes here so we're not going to spend this one on that uh that that's that's the way i responded to the death which yeah. i agree was uh based on very poor decision making uh by the character. It's like on the other on the Glen, it literally burst through walls. I'm just saying like you have no basis to believe it won't escape if you let down the force field, but Or that a phaser will be able to subdue it. Given that it didn't before, yeah. Um I did like the scene almost completely when she um basically gets Saru in the room like I like, okay, I'm glad they didn't just go with a younger Spock as the main character, thank God, but I do like the notes, like, there's, the thing they're doing with Burnham's character that interests me at this point, and you can tell me if you have a different take, is that she is a balance of human impulse and Vulcan logic, and Spock, at early TOS, hadn't himself quite learned how to balance um, those two things, like, and and even in later in Star Trek, like with Tuvok, they do spend some episodes being like your your um, that's what I'm looking for. Your uh, uh, logic gives you a certain ruthlessness that can be problematic. So I like watching her balance those things and fail because it does give the character somewhere to go. That's an interesting journey. How do you balance the, your pragmatism with your you know relationship building skills? I did think it was a little too neat of expecting Saru to like instinctively react to a thing. Like why wouldn't his, th he seems like a pretty nervous guy. I think he would be nervous even if he didn't have a reason to be nervous. I, I get what they were going for. It was like a little too cutesy. If that makes any sense, like expect like Burnham expecting him to be able to telepathically know the real intentions of this creature was a little cute. Yeah, I agree with that assessment uh, as far as her character goes. Um, you know, so as far as Burnham stuff goes, like what what were our big uh, threads here for her character? One was advocacy, you know, for the monster, right? Yeah. Which is great. Great Star Trek, you know, sort of stance to take, right? Hopefully they don't just forget it <laughs> in the next episode. You know, it's like, and we mentioned it, and now it's over. Like, there's, like, they need to have an episode. Like, uh, so let's name some of the episodes in which Star Trek has done variations on this story. You've got Devil in the Dark, of course, uh, but then you have the Exocomp episode. Uh, the Crystalline um, Entity. The Crystalline Entity. Yeah. Equinox. So this is, yeah, th this is a, a quintessential Star Trek type story, and. You get the feeling that someone like Brian Fuller, who actually worked on the damn show, understands that. And so I, I, I'm hoping. I didn't get that impression from the next episode blurb. Uh, well, she said, I, I think she said, the creature can't take any more of this. I think I heard yeah. her say that. So so maybe they'll just mention it briefly, but it won't be the, the plot driver, which is too bad because Star Trek stories should have that as a plot driver. You know, the, the ethical dilemma should be the main issue in the episode as opposed to, you know, battle plot or whatever. 
Um, I, I will say I was glad uh, to give credit where it's due. They did not drag out the reveal that the creature was on board for like four episodes. Um, and I want to give them credit for that because that is like mystery box writing 101 in which you like disclose the existence of a thing and then don't revisit it for several weeks. Yeah. Um, so, okay. I'm going to, I, I want to positively reinforce the behaviors I like. So yeah. good job setting up a mystery and then knocking it out the next episode. Good uh, job, I'm, guys. I'm kind of wondering whether some of that isn't just because of the artificially uh, brief schedule yeah. and, and their stated intention to have serialized storyline within that brief schedule. But, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. They they definitely did not drag out the monster mystery, which I'm happy about. Um other Burnham things, we've got Burnham receiving the last will and testament of Philippa Georgiou. Okay. I literally wrote UG Law in my notes because that's not, okay, I'm not going to apply 20th century, 21st century legal procedures um, to, uh, to the show per se, but that just doesn't make sense. That wasn't her last will and testament. That was her stuff. Her last will and testament instructed the executor of her estate to distribute <laughs> her stuff in keeping with her wishes. That's just, yeah. but that's just, you can look it up in a dictionary or ask one of the 900 lawyers that I'm certain CBS employs. Just putting it out there. Um, that being said, also, why would the box beep constantly until someone yeah. touches it? That was <laughs> like it. I was thinking that several times during the episode. I'm like, like I, I know that like Tilly is nice and shit, but if my roommate brought a in a beeping, beeping box, box like, I'd be like, God damn it, open that fucking box. Or get rid or of it, it or, or space it. Yeah, the, the only Armin Shimmerman's creepy face box was more annoying. That all aside, and it's un, I'm gonna prep, I'm gonna preface it with it's it's not entirely earned because it's pretty schlocky, but damn if I was not touched by that final hologram. Like, so Michelle. I like the hologram. I felt like the telescope thing was uh, not very well um, set up. Like, I knew it was the telescope before she opened oh, it. Oh, yeah, totally. Because they had kind of – it was like a Chekhov's telescope in the pilot episode. So and it's like, I have to go back to the pilot to watch it, but was it the same telescope? Because I thought that one was like – It a, doesn't look like it. That was shiny and like Bronzy. Gold. And that was – it was a different kind of reflector. The the telescope on the Shenzhou was like a, just a simple like spyglass telescope. And that was like an astronomer's refracting like – like and also it makes sense that she wouldn't take her family heirloom on assignment with her, that it would be in storage. Um, so I don't mind it not being the same telescope. In fact, it kind of makes sense that she likes if, if, if this is if that was like one of her things like, you know, Picard's lionfish or Shakespeare collection or whatever, like she collected antique telescopes. Everyone's got a hobby. I'm fine with that. I did yeah. telegraph that it was a telescope right at the top. But it was well, like, it was one of those like Michelle Yeoh's performance while earning the emotional resolve that the story didn't quite also made me lament that she is not on the show every week for the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was it was a fine performance as far as the recording goes. Um, I just kind of wonder, like, where that goes. Is it really – is this, like, just – they're not – she's not going to use the damn telescope again. Like, if she did, that would be ultra cute to the point of ridiculousness. <laughs> You know, it's like everything else on the ship is broken. Do we have any way to look out the window? No, I mean, that's just dumb. Well, they already uh, did that. They, they, that's what they use the telescope for in yeah. the pilot. 
Um, so, like, I feel like it can't actually be a plot point, and so I'm supposed to take it as sort of like an emotional development point or something, which, you know, I think it functions perfectly adequately as. Like, if it uh, were just in the background, like, like if that were her one tchotchke in her room, I'd, that'd be fine. I'd be fine yeah. with that. It, you know, when you when you kill that character so quickly, it sort of forestalls the kind of emotional development. Like Picard's flute is way more meaningful than Giorgio's telescope. Yeah, right. Give me that. Yeah. Because you know we're only told about this family history to the telescope in the recording. You know, it's not established over the course of a season or two seasons that this thing is meaningful, right? And so, you know, Picard's flute or his, uh, you know, tapestry, right? Yeah. Is it Mintakan? The Mintakan tapestry, yeah. You know, it's like each of those has like an entire episode's plot setting up how meaningful they are. And then you see it in the quarters for episode after episode after episode. Uh, Picard's flute, you know, he plays it with his Beverly stand-in, <laughs> you know. So it, like, those heirlooms worked better than this particular heirloom. But the scene in a vacuum worked fine. Yeah, I mean, um, I was so, I was moved in spite of myself. So yeah, good job, guys. Um, I the- I, I recognized objectively that it was a good performance i can't say that i was actually moved by it um well i've always been more touchy-feely than you that's the that's the balance here at trek to babble but picard's (laughs) flute moved me oh oh, yeah well picard's flute had me in like a puddle on the floor i still haven't recovered yeah Um, so okay so moving on to the other big half of the episode the klingon war stuff Uh. um okay there was an uh someone posted an article that literally three different friends have shared with me, which one makes me glad because my friends know who I am and what I like and what I want to read about a fan at Comic-Con asking Kurtzman, these Klingons feel very stereotypically savage African in their presentation. And that feels a little alienating. Um, what, and his answer was bullshit. Like there's, I mean, it was crap. It was, he was basically trying to give something about seeing the enemy as an other and developing the Klingons, completely ignoring the fact that TNG and DS9 actually developed the Klingons into the Shakespearean heroes and Vikings that we know and love and blah, blah, blah. And I read that article about an hour before diving into this episode, right in time to have them discuss eating Captain Giorgio. Yeah. And it's like, ooh, that article could not have been less well-timed. Now, I understand there is a history of Klingons saying they would eat the hearts of their enemies. That felt very ceremonial. This just felt like straight-up cannibalism in a way that made me feel uncomfortable and in need of an adult. Yeah, I mean, so, look, we can't necessarily judge the episode by the moronic pronouncements of one of the executive producers (laughs) in an extemporaneous just bullshit moment. Uh, So as episode, it did stick out, obviously, as a detail, right? Um, you know, that makes you go, hmm. Um, I, I don't, now personally, personally, I had not before reading that stupid Kurtzman quote gotten an African vibe, you know, from these Klingons. I, I, I was just sort of taking them 
at face value as a new iteration of the Klingon story, you know. And so I was like, okay, there's like 24 families. There were there were warring families before, and okay, they want to be like uh, ethnically pure and culturally pure. It's like I like that. I like that's a cool, you know, sort of allegorical take on some of the struggles in our world today, right? You know, between uh, you know the sort of more retrograde elements in the Islam or Islamic world, and you know the the more sort of like pushy forward. Western our way or the highway types, right? And so I was on board with it, you know. But now, because Kurtzman, you know, stuck his foot, you know, four feet up his ass, you know, with this stupid statement, I can't help but make those sorts of judgments. And and yeah, so now the cannibalism thing, which would have been innocuous to me, is now like, oh, is that that's how you're non othering them? by making them eat people because that doesn't seem like a very uh, good strategy of making sure that the viewer doesn't other the villain. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the plot just had a lot of like, okay, so here's the, so all of the previous problems, the they need to stop talking Klingon. All apologies to Klingon aficionados out there. They need to fucking stop talking Klingon because it just, I just start tuning out. Well, you can't keep, first of all, Klingon is apparently the world's slowest language. Like, it takes them forever to get through some pretty basic exposition. And it's just like, can we just Red October this, please? The first two minutes of Red October, uh, Sean uh, Sean Connery and, was it, uh, Sam O'Neill, or Sam Neill, are like, talking Russian, camera pivots, they're speaking English. It's yeah. fine. Um Two, the, I mean, the makeup still just precludes acting in any meaningful sense. Um, also, why weren't the other Klingons helping them? They're like the vanguard of this movement, but are just leaving the ship here to starve. And I understand this one other Klingon who showed up who was not with the other 23 houses was there just to cause ship. But why weren't the other 23 houses being like, oh, we'll, we'll just tell you. We got to tell. We have. To yeah, have to it be. didn't. See- like, it-, it makes no sense to me at all. The, the one clan, the core, I guess, or the house of core, you know, was like, we need you in the battle. Do you? Like, Do you really? Have you not like, known where he is? Like, yeah. What have you been doing for the for past six, six months? months? Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, it was, it seemed pretty obvious that like this Laurel woman just like totally wants to bone Vok for some reason. And like, it's an interesting choice as far as stories go. It's like, on the one hand, that does actually create a character dynamic which is not necessarily typical for, you know, the villain uh, in a Star Trek or any other piece, you know, having like a, a relationship develop and grow between the characters. But it still felt kind of weird. Um, I, I, I was certainly unengaged i mean i don't care but yeah and so i think as you say it's because the just the prosthetic is just so overwhelming um as are the and and then the language the prosthetic combined with the language just really saps my interest um and they need to do something now there's also a, a technical issue uh which I guess maybe you're not experiencing because you have 
infinitesimal subtitles, but I have gigantic subtitles. And so, like, for some reason, the subtitle programmers felt it necessary to tell me that there are characters conversing in Klingon. Even when there's... Okay, mine does not But do whenever that. they do that, that information blocks the burned-in subtitle. Oh, my God, that's awful. Of the Klingon. Yeah. That's so ridiculous. I can't, I can't read the first thing in any Klingon scene, and I have to, like, catch up. It's uh, it's really fucking irritating. So I just wish they'd stop t- speaking in Klingon. Yeah, it would help. Uh, and 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 we 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 gave them a lot of shit for like the universal translator that understands dramatic pauses. But I'd much rather have that than this because at least when Worf pauses to translate "today's a good day to die," when we all know that's what they say because that's what they always say, it was at least fun and engaging and in the moment. It's yeah. Um, also, this this is a very tiny note and really applies only to me. Um, part of my problem, and it's not this is not their fault. This is just me. But Lorel, that name, is one of the Dream Girls from the Broadway show Dream Girls, the one that's not the Diana Ross Avatar and not the one played by Jennifer Hudson. It's the third Dream Girl. So every time I hear her name, I'm momentarily brought back to Dream Girls, which is normally a perfectly pleasant experience but it just grabs my ear in the weirdest way does does no one google their names just to make sure it's not accidentally a swear word just put mm. it moving on um so yeah also the uh so related to these notes on the klingons the interiors of their ships are ridiculous maybe if you had not spent your resources on gold-plated bone or- ornamentation you might still have food yeah it's a very uh Donald Trump meets H.R. Geiger <laughs> aesthetic. It's like, oh my god. What do you think about the cloaking device? Um, at least they have clarified only Vox ship has it. They are not ostensibly retrograding that. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but the sequence of events for TOS is the Romulans have it. That's where the Federation learns about it. And the Klingons at some point buy it or trade for it or ally for it from the Romulans. Yeah, something like that. So, okay, at least the fact that only this one ship seems to have it theoretically makes it easier to keep it out of continuity, but again, why? Yeah, I, that's it's just the why question. Why even do it? Uh, it, it just, there, there's no point. Uh, it, it wasn't a question that needed asking. Um, you know, it has a classic episode already uh and the answer that fits with established tos continuity is not this one you know it's uh like you say it would be like the klingons and the romulans forming an alliance or something which might be interesting in and of itself but um it's just not what they're doing so yeah it just it raises a bunch of pointless questions which is kind of the mo uh, with a lot of this, right? Yeah. It's, like, it's like, why are you doing this? We don't know. It's just wasting time and annoying people. Congratulations. Uh, and then, so the other part of the episode, I guess the remaining kind of third is the dilithium mine plot. And I had a couple of questions here. Um, for a super, super duper secret project, Lorca was talking about it on the comm. Like maybe, maybe they all had to get security clearance to be on the ship, but it still seemed kind of like, it's a super secret project. Maybe you shouldn't have the speakers on. Um, I 
I did ask the obvious question in my head, if the Dilithium mine is so important, why aren't there just ships always there? Um, though I think they at least tried to say something about um, the other ships protecting the convoys have been attacked and destroyed. So, okay, it's a war, you lose ships, it's fine. But it did feel like this is like a really dumb iteration of the you are the nearest ship. Um, they even said you're the only ship that can get there, which, yeah, that's um, I, tropey in the extreme. Yeah, and uh, what was the other thing? Oh, I found his use. Uh, and tell me what you think the episode meant with this. When he turns on the speakers to play the miner's distress signal to the ship, that felt douchey, but I think the episode agreed with me. Like, we were supposed to interpret that as nakedly manipulative by the captain. Well, I mean, I took it in concert with the scene in which he sort of laments the fact that he's surrounded by a bunch of explorers and scientists who don't know their ass from a hole in the ground when it comes to a violent conflict. Um, and so he was using that to kind of impress upon them how they needed to take this. I don't, I don't know if more seriously is the way to put it, but more to, urgently to, to, well, to be on sort of like their crack, you know, yeah, like okay. Okay. Uh, intense um, the, behavior. The one line in that scene that annoyed the fuck out of me was, the, I understand there's a standard list. You got to name three inventors. Three is oh, the, the Elon sh- Musk. Yeah. I'm that's... like, I'm sorry. Did you did you work the Did you remember to work the balls while you were working the shaft? Because that's important. It was just like the okay. The only time they've referenced a living person to laud them for being a genius was Stephen Hawking, and that was decades into a career of revolutionizing physics, you know? Yeah. Like right now we've got like an electric car and this like hyperloop concept. Yeah, like, and, the, and the, the electric car is prohibitively expensive. And the hyperloop was as, is as masturbatory as that reference was. Um, it was just like, Ooh, that hurt. First of all, you've forgotten the science fiction rules. You say Edison, you say Tesla, and then you say a fake alien name. It's because yeah. it's the future. Those are, those are the rules. <laughs> You, you say the Wright brothers or Edison or Schmlegeggy. That's that's how it works because that's well, how he you... said he said Cochrane, right? Yeah. What do you say, Wright, Cochrane, and Musk? Which, for, first of all, even if everything Elon Musk wants to achieve is achieved, he's still not Zephram Cochrane. Yeah, he didn't revolutionize human existence. <laughs> he, he made a he made a long-standing one moderately more efficient. Let's 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 dial it back. Um, I will say in the captain, I did like his scenes with um, Stamets this time. I and maybe just because I'm more used to it and I expect it, and it's in the story. I thought his conflict with him about tactics and goals and obligations all worked really well this time. Yeah, I, I generally like their antagonism. I think it's an interesting story dynamic, and I'm into it. Um, so let's see, is that does that basically cover the plot? Yeah. Uh, Okay, can I just ask a production question? Yeah. Why does the goddamn saucer section rotate like a pizza cutter? See, this is I, I I was I was ready to discuss this first. On the one hand, it is a little ridiculous. I agree. On the other hand, and this this is just I was thinking about it this way is like I asked last time we did this, why is it two nested discs? Wouldn't a solid disc be give you more space. Oh yeah. And it, it explains that question, so, like, but it uh, just raises so many others. It, uh, so I was like, on the one hand, I'm like, 
Alright, so the thing I thought was stupid at least has a purpose in your heads. Okay. Okay. Um. Uh. Like, are there, like, hallways that go, that have to be lined up? Or are, are there just no people in those sections and it's really, like, equipment? Or, I I don't know. Yeah, there. It, it, I agree. It raises a lot more questions than it answers. But I was almost thrilled that they're dumb. Like, unlike the Abrams verse, like which made dumb style choices with no explanation, this is at least a questionable style choice with some explanation, and that counts as a win today because everything is terrible in the rest of the world, and I have to hang my hat where I can. Um, so yeah, I agree with everything you're saying, but I was actually so tickled that their design decision had an actual plot-based follow-up that I was almost like, sure, it's bullshit, but but I, I'm almost I'm not mad. <laughs> no, I I hear you. Um, <laughs> it is a low bar to clear, uh, and they cleared it. So congratulations. Um, in other stuff on the ship, I I really like the corridor outside Burnham's quarters. It has like this, like, it's clearly not a mat, and it's like two uh, X junctions farther back from each other. Like, it, it, the ship just looks very big and full of people and full of stuff. And uh, I really liked that set piece because, you know, you normally the Enterprise was at best one intersection, one of them was a mat painting. So I kind of like the depth of space in the design of the ship. Like, the interiors, I actually really like. We got kind of a brief look at the Klingon bird of prey, it's sort of a, like a shape, <laughs> and the shape was okay. Um, you know, it was reminiscent yeah. without being a complete copy. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a it looks like a swooping hawk of some kind. I think though that it's really been part of the DNA of the show since TOS to give us beauty shots of ships and ships are sort of like characters unto themselves. And so I do still have questions and or disapproval of the general approach of make everything like explode and shake to the point where you can't tell what it really looks like, because I feel like knowing what things look like is an important part of Star Trek Uh, And, and connecting to the damn story. Um, I will say, uh, in terms of good effects work, I did like the abandoned Shenzhou overall. I thought it was a good shot. I liked the interior of the bridge with the, you know, horror frost and floating equipment. I thought that was well achieved. I did think Vox's spacesuit was ridiculous. And, yeah. like, I think I remember Matt LeBlanc's face coming out of a similar helmet in the ill-fated Lost in Space movie adaptation. It's that same thing. It's like... I get you want to get him in and out of a suit quickly, but actually figuring a way to do that or fig- like, st- I get it. Spacesuit acting is hard, but it's just like, ugh. well, it wasn't as bad a floating head as Burnham's floating head was in her uh, rocket pack suit. Really, you didn't like that? I was okay with it. I oh, I thought the look was fine, but it was just clearly one of those CGI floating <laughs> head sort of situations. Yeah. Um. No, I, I liked the look, and I certainly, of course, liked the callback to t- uh, the motion picture, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, so I was into that, but it just, you know, it was clearly CGI. <laughs> uh, 
what else? Oh, I like the one shot that I really enjoyed uh, was when the ship jumps to the star and they have that long shot over the silhouette. I thought that was a really well done. That like that was what I want. I was able to take in an entire tableau, and because the sun was so huge and the ship so tiny, I got a sense of the scale. And I was like, that was a good shot because the ship has a distinctive silhouette. Um, so I, I kind of I really enjoyed that. Like more of that, please. Um. Yeah, um, I I do feel that they kind of got it shaky a bit, uh, and I want to see more of the ship warping away um so they, they kind of did it very quickly it, it was a it was a generally cool sequence which really didn't do much for the plot it was just like and then they you know made a mistake um so yeah i mean i guess a lot of my inability to sort of grab on to stories to some degree is that they're not spending time on the things that I'm accustomed to Star Trek spending time on. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I get that. Like normally they'd spend 30 to 40 minutes on the complex question of whether this is a sentient being and whether it has rights and feelings and, you know, should we be, you know, taking advantage of this thing without asking it? Can we communicate with it? Is it possible to communicate with a being so vastly different? You know, uh, like all those sorts of questions, right? Um, you know, it feels like they briefly reference these kinds of questions, but then get back to the action story. I know this is, this is where that tension is coming from because they keep like giving me just enough of Star Trek that I recognize and like to then make me, but then make me worried that uh, (laughs) they're going to take it all away or they're going to run out. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Acting-wise? Acting-wise, everyone was fine. I really like Burnham. I really like Saru. I would watch them have a morning show where they bickered amiably. Um, And, and like, here's here's a lesson. Like, whatever style choices they made for Saru's face, it lets his face move. Like, so much of... And maybe it's some CGI assistance. Maybe it's all just, you know, much leaner prosthetics. But he's allowed to emote through some fairly heavy prosthesis. I mean, hell, uh, Rene Auberginois' face was buried under, you know, from, you know, forehead to chin, but he could still communicate. Um, I just, um, like, Saru's like the, ver- like, Saru's proof that what they wanted to do with the Klingons doesn't have to preclude leaving the actors the ability to act. Um, yeah. Um, I like Stam. Oh, let me ask you. So I've heard rumors that Stamets is going to be an openly gay character, which I guess when you get Anthony Rapp, he probably can't convincingly play straight. Um, but did you read that his animosity with the Doctor was like, like when he says, like, well, that's just, I don't need that part of my brain. It's for emotions. Like, well, I'll save it in case you ever have a feeling. That's a level of acid that gay men only reserve for their exes. Like, yeah. I read that as we dated and you were an emotionally closed off jackass to me and then questioned why I was mad at you about it like a jackass. That's how I read that scene. And maybe I'm overreading into it, but that was the vibe I got. No, I, I, I could believe that. The actor for the doctor 
struck me as really familiar. Um, is he the guy from My So-Called Life who played, uh, you know, the, the gay? He is. I just looked it up. Holy shit, he got old. Um, oh yeah, you want to have a you want to have a they got old mind fuck. The admiral is the bitchy receptionist from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. It was driving me nuts the entire hour. Like, who is that woman that looks vaguely like Maura Tierney but is not Maura Tierney? And I finally figured it out because I couldn't even remember her name. Uh, I I, had to, I was googling Star Trek female admiral for like ten minutes. I was like, oh thank God, I feel like a I don't know how people live before the internet. How did you just live with unanswered trivia questions? Yeah, so he played Ricky Vasquez, the sort of gay Puerto Rican best friend in my so-called life with Claire Danes. Which I think um, supports my theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it, if they're casting to type, that certainly seems to be something that could be going on. And I wouldn't be opposed to that. That's fine. Uh, you know, sure. Uh, so far, there are no romantic relationships at all, right? Yeah. And it would be nice to have, well, I mean, accepting the fact that Valk and Laurel might be, you know, knocking solo boots sometime soon. Um, I, you know, I hope they don't have a baby and, like, make it some future famous Klingon or something. Because that would be stupid. Especially given the prosthesis and all that shit um hmm um i liked uh tilly a lot i actually liked like uh, i think they set it to a simmer as opposed to a hard boil and her like awkwardness and maybe it's just because she wasn't in as much of the episode that oh, there's a backhanded compliment but like um i thought her awkwardness felt much like softer and credible this time around and i'm like yes do keep doing that yeah they didn't really have her do much outside of character stuff with Burnham. Um, but yeah, I thought she was fine. And of course, uh, Michelle Yeoh was good. Um, you know, but like you say, it just sort of makes you wonder why couldn't she just be in the show? I mean, I'm going to say it like, and Jason Isaacs is doing a fine job with what they're giving him. I would kind of love to see Michelle Yeoh take a bite out of Captain Ahab here. Like, I think she would, I think she would, be an interesting choice to portray that character. And like, if, if they could have melded the story of the first two episodes with whatever story they're going to keep telling and just keep it on the same ship and make uh, Giorgio the captain, I would not have been mad at that at all. Yeah. It's interesting that you say captain Ahab, uh, because last episode they had him be sort of multifaceted. It seemed like he was both an explorer and a warrior, and once the war was done, he would get back to exploring. Now it's like, I study war. That's what I do, you know? And everybody has this sort of very tense feeling about him. Well, and so I just wonder where the story can right, go. Because some of that felt really inauthentic. Like, once this works, we're the front line. No, once it works, you put it on an actual warship. That's how prototypes work. You like, like like the idea like it was just like like that that line caught my ear weird because it's like once this works Discovery goes home to have its engine removed and put in an actual battleship, um, duh. 
So I don't know. Just uh, I agree. The characterization is a little uneven from pilot to now, which 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 again just feeds this like s- slow embering fire in my stomach that like 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 heartburn that it's just going to get stupid. I mean, there's enough here that I like. Like Burnham is clearly written in a way to be the physical embodiment of all the things we like about Star Trek. Because she's always the one raising those issues or experiencing those feelings. And they have ostensibly made her the focus of the show. So that's good. But it's just, they've given, they've, they've given themselves such a difficult job for no apparent reason. Like, even if it works out as well as they want it to, am I still going to feel like, well, why did we bother with that? Like, why, like... Like, there are only 24 hours in a day. You got to sleep for six to eight of them. You got to live the rest of your life for six to eight of them. So, like, you get a finite quantum of time to work on this show. Why spend some of that time fixing a problem you created? Like, I'd much rather... I Rather than you sitting with a whiteboard and, like, drawing lines to, like, 1984B and salt... Like, rather than watch you unpack this puzzle box, I'd much rather you... You know, give me more Burnham and Saru scenes or retroactively make Captain Giorgio alive. Like, there's just so many other things your resources could go to than untangling the knot you tied for reasons that escape my understanding at this juncture. And maybe I'll eat my words. Maybe I'll think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But, ugh. Well, Alex Kurtzman says it's all going to be explained. Ugh, every time he said, like, and, and the fact that it's him saying it and not like Fuller is part of what bothers me because I don't, I'm worried that what he thinks works doesn't mm. actually work. Yeah. He has <laughs> earned, earned no trust. <laughs> um, I will say in that same article, they've uh, Anthony Rapp, uh, who is apparently binging the shows uh, now that he's on one um, said, he thinks that stylistically the show is a blend of the original series and deep space nine, which to this point I would agree with. And I am heartened that, one of the main actors is both like adept enough to get what Star Trek is about and like smart enough to be able to like, you know, like, like I was just listening. I, I've been transferring all our podcasts to the new hosting service and I've been listening like here and there. And I listened to way of the warrior. Cause I really like that episode. And you made a comment about Nana visitor commenting how that was going to make Bajor take a back seat. And it's kind of like, it's kind of gratifying when the actors get it. It's like, I trust you more now to shepherd this along because you have at least part of your brain engaged with the bigger story. Like, okay, that makes me feel a little better. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of annoying when actors are just like, yeah, I don't pay attention at all. It's just words on a page to me. It It makes it a better performance when you feel like they're really invested in their character. And, you know, it's, some of it is just like they're invested in how many lines they get. Um, you know, that like they want secure employment, right? But it's it's really gratifying when it when an actor sort of takes stewardship of the character, like Leonard Nimoy did. Yeah. You know? And, 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 and yeah, I, because I he does, it becomes so much more three dimensional yeah. and realistic. And I understand. It's it's gravy. It's not like they have to. Like I'm not saying every actor has to be a diehard fan. Um and I like I think Pat, you know I believe Patrick Stewart cared about the quality of his performance and the emotional truth of what he was doing. I don't think he really 
watched a lot of Star Trek or could converse on its finer details. Well, I don't think he remembers any of it. Yeah. So, so there, there, there are grades, and I, so I, it, but it was just, it was just nice that someone in the show seems to actually understand actual Star Trek rather than just insisting that they do. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So in the battle, was there anything else I missed? Oh, I had one very important question left that I have not posed. In a lot of the bridge scenes, they kept cutting to this very hunky guy in the back of the bridge. They cut to his face too many times for me to think he's not going to eventually get a name in a story. So I just want, so my notes literally ask, who is hunky background guy? So if anyone listening to this has figured it out or got a spoiler or something, you, you let us know. I'm very interested with the sad passing events in Connors. There's got to be some uh, eye candy for me. And right now it's him. So just putting that out into the universe. All right. In the balance, this is a three for me. I like yeah. the acting. I like everything. Bur- I, all of the story with Burnham was, was, it was at least average or above average, depending on the moment. The actiony stuff, while competently executed, and at no point broke the Star Trekness of this story, still leaves me with a vague sense of ill ease. In um, like like okay, the moment that typifies this, even from a even setting aside its Star Trekness, um, when they when the miners like all emerge and the little girl asks, "Who saved us?" What a fucking inorganic question. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you're a kid would ask mommy, "Is it over?" You know, is it going to stop? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like it was just like one of those, like, Oh God. And like, is, is that Kurtzman? Is that Kurtzman? Uh, there's another writer and I forget his name, Goldman. Uh, I forget his first name, but I, I I've read Akiva something. Yeah. And I've read his list of other stuff. Not concerned. I'm concerned. Um, so yeah, it's just like, I keep sitting and maybe this is going to, this is what I worry about, that I'm going to deny myself a pleasurable viewing experience because I'm going to sit here parsing out, that was fuller, that wasn't fuller, oh, God, that was totally fuller, that's totally not. Like, I just, I, and may, maybe after the, like, winter breaks, I think they're doing nine episodes and then take it, like, which will be done about Thanksgiving-ish, and then they're going to come back in January. I'm hoping by that point enough has happened to give me some clarity on the tonal content of the show. Um, and I, I get that's a bit of a lot to ask for a Star Trek series because every Star Trek series to date has, maybe with the exception of the original series, has taken a full season at least to find its tone, find what its actors are really good at, and find its best stories. So maybe I'm asking for a little bit much right out of the gate, but I am living in the golden age of television. We know you can do it, and it can't be it can't be harder to make good TV than bad TV. You know, it's not like you have to pay a writer more to write good stuff. In fact, I would argue it's easier to write a coherent story because then you don't have to go back and fix it when it stops working. But maybe I maybe I'm being too harsh. Um, but it's just like I I just want to know. Like honestly, even if I knew this would be a occasionally interesting always entertaining but not offensive action fest like if this if this were actually what abrams people think the abrams movies actually are even though they're not i would enjoy it i'd watch it i probably would stop paying for it 
But I'd watch it and be like, okay, the effects are good. The actors are fun. Again, I find myself arrested by Sonequa Martin-Green's face. I literally can't look at anything else when she's on screen. So that is a pleasurable viewing experience. But I, I just need to know if the parts that I like are going to go away when they run out of Brian Fuller's post-its. That's, that's all I need to know. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the waiting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm on a three, two. Uh, the, the Klingon stuff was kind of interminable. Um, the battle scenes detracted from potentially interesting story ideas that were sort of left on the vine. Uh, but they were there. The interesting story ideas were there. The interesting character dynamics were there. Um, you know, it's... Uh, I, I, if this same episode happens another two or three times, it's going to be a two. Right? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's kind of like the first episode. Like, and, and we've run into this before. Like, the first time seven objects to Janeway's command style because of a philosophical point. It's interesting. Like the ninth time it wears a little thin um, data's humanity. Like, yeah, yeah. There, there are many plot threads. They leaned on a lot um, that wore thin. So maybe, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. Well, I mean, it's not even that it's a plot thread in particular. It's just a, a, a style of entertaining. It's like sooner or later, I'm just going to be tired of explodey battle scenes, you know, and I'm going to want you to, to not just gloss over a, a real Star Trek issue in like 30 seconds. And that's the thing, like, because we live in the golden age of television, you can't be like, I get the kind of crass economic thinking that says only a subset of the most anal retentive nerds really enjoyed this kind of stuff. But like, I don't think you can say that anymore. Battlestar Galactica was popular. Um, like all of the shows that like make waves now have some like deeper message and are well crafted and thoughtfully like Handmaid's Tale just won best drama like that is not you know explosiony tripe and sure those were critics and not viewers and I get all that but it's like you can't be like if anything I expect even more from Star Trek because Star Trek was doing some more nuanced philosophical ethical big storytelling back when it wasn't expected of television when they thought you couldn't do it on television and now all television is presumptively required to do it unless like you're the big bang theory I mean it's just like like do, do you see what I'm saying where it's like yeah so much of entertainment now is Star actually... Trek has actually taken a step back yeah. where all, all these other shows have taken a step forward like like I, I, I know you also watch the good place and uh, as soon as you're caught up you let me know because I want to discuss that with you in a non-podcast format. Um, oh, it's easily the best show on television. But it, it's like you, the, this half-hour single-camera comedy from the guy who did Parks and Rec, and I love Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec is also a very good show. But like this show is it, like when was the last time? Like I would have, if you had told ten-year-old Kevin one day of popular, successful, delightful comedy will directly engage Kant as a plot point. Yeah. <laughs> like. You can do it. If Michael Schur can do it, so can Alex Kurtzman. Like, 
Well, let's not say that, but so can someone that could conceivably be hired by yeah, CBS. Like, like if, if anything, I've been spoiled in the intervening, you know, 15 years. Television's undergone a revolution in which both more nuanced stories are the, you know, the, the order of the day. And we understand you're never going to get Friends ratings again. It's never going to happen. You it are doesn't at, have to. Right. You, you are now free to cater to your niche. And just so yeah, I, I, oh God, I just I. <laughs> so I'm I'm largely where I am when I started um, Vulcan Hello. Cautiously optimistic that caution is getting a little tauter as the episodes roll on. But the core looks like it's there. I just want them to focus on it, like. Maybe we need to start like a change.org petition. We pro since all the Trekkies sign it. We don't need explosions to be entertained. It's not that we find them anti-entertaining. It's just that they're not as entertaining as the other things we're here for. And to the extent we need explosions, there are many other places with many other explosions. I just... Yeah, there have been four episodes. There really hasn't been a complete science fiction story with beginning, middle, and end among them. And that's concerning to me. And, and, and that's the thing. Like, if uh, if I started fresh, like, if Deep Space, if you if the only Deep Space Nine you had under your belt were like the closing arc, it's an odd place to start. But go with me for a second. That did not have a ton of science fiction, but it was also engaging. And I don't know. Like, I I'm trying to be fair. I am. Tr here's what here's what I th here's what I'm worried I'm doing every time I complain about Star Trek is that I'm unfairly expecting a show to reproduce the sense of familiarity, warmth, and comfort that I can still summon at will from the next generation. Well, putting on any episode, even except, except Code of Honor, maybe Angel One, and that's about it. But accepting those two episodes, even the crap, still feels like putting on a favorite sweater. Like the, the tan, to, to borrow a line, it is as if joy were something tangible that you could wrap yourself in like a blanket. That is what that show is to me and to many other Star Trek fans who came of age during Next Gen's original run. So I understand to ask a show to do that for me is unfair and impossible. So I'm working very hard to like give all of the benefits of the doubt I can but then you got them eating the meat off of Captain George's skull, and I just it makes me tense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that seemed like an unnecessary detail. Um, unless they were going to do something with it, right? Uh, like have people be afraid of it, have that be part of their their mystique, or, or if have they, it if have they, it tie into their mythology somehow, or even if they had just acknowledged we were literally out of food. I'm super grossed out by it too, but you know. Here we are. Yeah. Like, even that would have been fine. Like, just, I just, I, I, okay, I'll say this in the show's favor. I still want to like it. Yes, yeah. I'm not turned off. Yeah. I'm, I'm just starting to get progressively more dubious as episode after episode goes by without really digging its teeth into an ethical quandary or a science fiction, you know, concept. And, the the whole Horta tardigrade thing is the the potential so far. Um, they haven't really done anything with the sport. Are they calling it spore drive now? 
I think so. <laughs> uh, Stamets is like an expert in fungus. Is he also an expert in warp theory? I don't know. Um, yeah. So, it, Discovery now has a warning <laughs> in my book. I want to start seeing better effort on the one or two things that are quintessentially Star Trek. Like, yes, you're impressing me with your effects. Yes, the actors are competent and even quite good. You know, but goddammit, start getting back to the core of what Star Trek is. You know, DS9 had science fiction core stories. You know, DS9 was not just, you know, a war show. Not at all. Not even half of it. Not even a quarter of it. Like, even in season six and seven, they spent more than half of those episodes telling individual stories with sci-fi ideas. And, and I'll, I'll add an asterisk to that. Even if you gave, even if you replaced the war stories with straight up character development, I have said many times that it's like the closest you and I come to like a major philosophical disagreement about Star Trek, where it's like, the setting is 90% of the time enough for me in that department. Like, if you just gave me nuanced, non-shouty, non-explodey character interactions, I'd probably also be fine. Fine enough. No, I, yeah. I agree. I agree because <laughs> when you build a character in that world, you're telling me about the world. Right. You right. know, Tom Paris's life experience on Earth is in a future Earth with future Earth considerations. You know, and it's the same with... Bolana Torres or Jordi LaForge or whoever, right? Doesn't matter. So I agree. It's like explosions are detracting from yeah, both like, characterization and science. Again, fiction. and going back to Next Gen, which I just said I'm trying not to do, but I was uh, uh, the episode I was uh, thinking about today was the loss because uh, it has one of my favorite Riker jokes uh, when she collapses crying into his arms and asks if that's how he solves all his personnel problems. And he goes, oh, yeah, you'd be amazed how far a hug goes with Jordy or Worf. Uh, that was a great joke. It was, And it was a great moment because it was just like, that. I want some sense. And, and again, this is part of what appealed to me so much about Next Gen was watching these like nice, competent people all get along and care about each other. And I kind of want that too. And I and I understand Deep Space Nine was darker, but there were bonds. Like even if it wasn't quite the hippy dippy love fest that Next Gen was, anyone, they weren't all bonded, but some of them were bonded with every, each other. No one individually. Was, there was not one character that didn't have a meaningful bond with no one. Even Garrick got a meaningful. Uh, what's the word? I'm like homoerotic. Oh, slightly homoerotic, but like improving but like a, a a connection to another character or characters that made him a more interesting well-rounded person even if it was against his will everyone on the show had one of those relationships and i get that given where they're starting that they, they like it doesn't have to be there right away i mean it, it just but it's just like that it doesn't seem like they'll ever get there at this pace yeah like i mean it's it's one of those like if I want to see a world where no one likes or trusts each other, I will just go outside. <laughs> well, or watch Game of Thrones. Right. <laughs> um, We've got good TV that does that already. Yeah. So, like, yeah. So, I, don't get me wrong. My even if it stays just at this, if it gets no more explosiony, 
I will probably stick it out in a way that I frankly did not stick it out with Enterprise. And, you know, I was in college. It was kind of hard to catch up each week and I let it fall by the wayside. But I am more engaged at this point in Discovery than I was at this point in Enterprise. Well, the actors are better in this than in Enterprise. And the character writing generally is stronger. But Enterprise, uh, for all of its faults is more of a Star Trek show than this is so far. Uh, I agree with you that if it maintained this level of quality, it's still a level of quality quite a bit above the Abrams movies, uh, even if it ends up being the least of the series. Um, so there's that. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, I, I hope that you know there are some science fiction stories coming. And I also agree with you, and I hope that there are some character development stories coming. Like, you know, what's up with Lorca? Why is he like this? You know, does he have some sort of deep, dark, you know, loss and, in and his that, past? That, that concerns me about the um, next episode because, one, I am actually tired. Between Batman and Game of Thrones, there's apparently not a single person in the world raised non-traumatically by two living parents. It just, I get a little fatigued of the idea that the only, like, it's it's worse for women because of the things we do to women in our society, but even with the male characters, it's like, does he have to have a trauma? Is the, o- is the only interesting thing you can tell me about a character the worst day of his life and a statistically shockingly worst day? Like, I just, I want a character, like, like, Captain Picard was an interesting person. He experienced trauma on the show, but that was not why his character was interesting and nuanced and good interest, you know, from the get-go. In fact, I don't think any of the characters are next gen. Or okay, DS9, you can you could say, you know, O'Brien's war experience, Kira's war experience and Cisco's war uh, Borg experience, but it's still it, it was like it's just they found ways to give histories to these characters that was not trauma and i'm worried particularly given that it's the klingon lady with uh lorca in a you know torture chamber that um it's gonna just end up being we will do this traumatizing thing to explore your previous traumatizing thing and it's really come to just be lazy writing for me that is the emotional equivalent of explosions yeah (laughs) no i'm with you uh torture porn essentially like, um, like, and, and, and again, okay, I keep saying I need to not let this be just a next generation comparison, but we had an episode with some pretty, gru- not gruesome, but upsetting torture scenes with Picard, but that served an episode. It managed to be both a homily against torture writ large and an interesting character-defining moment, politics-defining moment. It was a, like, everything they did to Picard in Chain of Command served something other than titillating the audience. Yeah. And, ugh, yeah. Maybe the, maybe that's the best way to sum this up in a way that doesn't turn into a pedantic, you know, what are we at? Two and a half, two, two hours, three hours, I don't know. Um, rant. I want Star Trek to not be lazy. Even if it run like, this, and, and this is the way I've defended Deep Space Nine many times. Even when they fucked up, there was an Iris Steven bear-shaped hole in the wall from where he ran through it so quickly without paying attention. Of all the sins you could lay at DS9's feet, even with, like, storyteller, 
maybe okay, maybe Move Along Home is the exception that proves the rule, but the show was never or very rarely <laughs> lazy. Even if it made a choice I found impenetrable. Oh, Move Along Home is not lazy. <laughs> I mean, it's it goes whole hog <laughs> for that game metaphor and it's just fucking terrible. You know, but it's not lazy. I mean, and the actors God bless them, you know. <laughs> They sang Alamoraine and they hopped on one foot and it's just like swearing if I ever wake up in hell it's gonna be in that Alamoraine room for eternity. Um <laughs> But it's just I want that back. I you know what it is that's the thing. I, I want at the height of of next gen, which is we I think we agree is like seasons three, four, and five, that team of Pillar and Berman and Braga and Moore and Taylor they all seemed like big goofy kids. Like, like there was there was like a joy in watching them talk about that time and that work. And even when the story they were telling was sad, that energy suffused the show. And you listen to you know Ron Moore and Iris Stephen Bear talk about Deep Space Nine or Taylor and Braga talk about Voyager. It was important. They were proud of it. It was something to be proud of. And. Rather than spending all of his time defending a plot choice that makes no sense and I'm worried will never make sense, I want to hear from the writers to be like, this is what this is the stories I'm burning to tell. These are, this is the ideas that rattle around in my head. Like I want these Star Trek writers to give an interview that looks like Lin Manuel Miranda talking about Hamilton. Like, because that's what. I really like more like like the, the the common DNA strand to all the things we've ever identified that we like about Star Trek is just this enthusiasm for making something interesting and good and complicated. Like there's something, however that manifests itself as ethics questions or science fiction ideas or complicated characters between you know competent adults and all that. All all of that shares this just like enthusiasm for an interesting story well told and i just i want that back more than anything in my star trek i think that the creators care about the characters i think that the actors are invested i just think they need better stories to tell better plots um so hopefully they get there uh yeah so it's a six. Yeah. Um, it's if not it keeps bad. Going, yeah. If it keeps going this way, it's the my scores are going to start to dip uh, because you know I I want to see better follow through. You know, these are the kind of comments I write on papers. You know, it's like you really could have followed through on this element more. <laughs> you know, and as the elements that I want more follow through on are the elements that are traditionally in the Star Trek that I love. Uh, you know. High concept sci-fi, and I agree with you. Uh, good character storytelling. When Pillar came in and really said, "This is a Geordi story. This is a Worf story," you know, that's when the show really took off because not only did they tell a good sci-fi story, but they tied it to a character growing. Uh, and you know, that's that's a bingeable kind of show. You know, season one. They would often have a high concept idea, but then the characters would just kind of be like going through the motions, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's a six. 
right. we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll be here. We'll be here next week. And I just want to say I'm proud of us. This is three podcasts, three weeks in a row. So for, knock on wood for any technical problems in uh, in uh, posting this on time. So I'm proud of us, even if I remain concerned about the show. Um, so we will see you next time here at Treknababble. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we are currently migrating all of the old stuff. I think Deep Space Nine back to season four, Voyager back to season two, and uh, First Contact and be, uh, Star Trek First Contact and Star Trek Beyond are up. I'm working about one season a day. It is slightly tedious to kind of migrate all of that stuff. Um, the website is treknababble.net. Please uh, comment and join the discussion. If you think this is the best Star Trek, we would love to hear why. And uh, if you think it's the worst Star Trek, I would also like to hear why, if there's something we missed. Uh, this that is, the, that is like the secondary fun, super fun part of Star Trek, I think for both of us, is having long conversations about Star Trek with other people. Uh, so please join us. Uh, and we'll see you next week uh, for... What's uh, what's the next episode called? Did they release the title yet? Oh, God, I don't know. I think it's shorter. I think I saw a list, and it was shorter. So, thank God. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I'm looking it up right now. The next episode, according to Memory Alpha, is called Choose Your Pain. Uh, which, when tied into the shot of Lorca being tortured by a Klingon, is, uh, it's not... It's not encouraging, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. Peace and long life. All right. Have a good night, everyone. <laughs>